If you'll take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3. I'm going to preach a message called, Be Prepared. When I hear that phrase, I always think of the um, animated movie Hoodwinked, if anybody ever saw that. The, uh, it was a goat that was always prepared for everything. And uh, you need to watch that movie if you don't know what I'm talking about. But anyway... Um, we are in Luke chapter number three, and we are. Uh, my original intent was to cover 14 verses, as you see in the bulletin, and I never made it past verse number six for uh, this message. It's, there's just so much here that I think that we need to cover. Luke chapter number three, uh, verse number one. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar... Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Etruria and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, governor, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming the baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill shall be made low, the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways. All flesh shall see the salvation of God. Lord, we thank you for your word. We pray that you will bless not only the reading, but the preaching of the word. Lord, give us uh, ears to hear and eyes to see and minds to understand and comprehend the great word that you have given us from the book of Luke. In Christ's name, amen. John was the immediate forerunner of Christ, the Messiah, and his preaching was designed to prepare the listeners for the coming of of Jesus Christ. Now, we haven't been in Luke since February, or January, actually, I think is the last time we were here, so you you might need to remember that approximately 30 years have passed since Luke 1 and 2 and Luke chapter number 3 save an incident in the temple when Jesus was 12 years old. And so in the period of time between Luke 1 and 2 and chapter number 3, John the Baptist grew up in obscurity. And the only thing we know about Jesus, as I said, was that incident in the temple when he was about 12. But all in the Father's good timing and perfect timing, Both John and Jesus began their public ministries when they were somewhere around 30 years old. We don't know exactly how old they are. The scripture says about 30 years old. Now, for over 400 years, there's been silence in Israel from the Lord. Uh, The last prophet in Israel was the prophet Malachi. And it's been 400 years since Malachi. And John becomes the first prophet 
in Israel in over 400 years. And he is called by Jesus the last and the greatest. And Jesus is talking about the Old Testament prophets. And so I, I want you to see what the Old Testament has to, to say about him. So turn to the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi chapter number three, or four, I'm sorry. And we will see that Malachi talks about John the Baptist. So the next to the last prophet, almost the last thing that he says is about the last prophet in the Old Testament. Malachi 4, verses 5 and 6. Malachi says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn hearts of the fathers to their children and hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And so here we have it. There was debate for over 400 years because if you remember, Elijah was carried into heaven by a chariot of fire. You remember that? You know, reading that in scripture. And so the debate was, does the literal Elijah come back or, or what's going on here? And um, Malachi predicted it. Malachi also said that this man who comes is coming when? Before the great and awesome day of the Lord. And so in a sense, the coming of Jesus Christ the first time is the great and awesome day of the Lord. Jesus is going to come again and we're going to have another day of the Lord, the great and awesome day of the Lord. And what is his job description according to this passage here? His job description is that he will be the immediate forerunner of Jesus Christ. Malachi said that the forerunner would be another Elijah. We understand that now. The Old Testament saints did not understand that at that time. But the question uh, that, that I want to pose to you is how did the people in that day know that John the Baptist was that Elijah? Well, interestingly enough, there's a, an incident in 2 Kings that's important to this. If you want to turn there, just turn to the first chapter of 2 Kings. King Ahaziah fell through the lattice at his palace and he was not a, a believer in God. He was not a worshiper of God. Well, he, he probably was. He was a syncretist. And he, he held more highly to the word of Baal. So he said to his messengers, go to the prophet of Baal and ask if I will recover. Well, along the way, the messengers ran into someone else and they came back very quickly. And the king looked at them and said, hey, hey, why are you so back so quickly? Why have you returned so quickly? And they said, we met a man. And verse number eight describes it. They answered him, he wore a garment of hair and a belt of leather around his waist. And Ahaziah said, what? That's Elijah. That's Elijah the Tishbite. You ran into Elijah and not the prophet of Baal. Now that's important because when you turn back to Matthew chapter number 3, in verse number 4, we see this. Now John, talking about John the Baptist, wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist. And of course we always focus on his diet, which was locusts and wild honey. But Everybody knew that this was the Elijah. 
or they had a pretty good idea that this was Elijah. Some of the people thought that he was the Christ, and you see that in Matthew, and you see it again in Luke. But he was, he was Elijah. He was a forerunner of Jesus Christ. And so Luke points this out. And then Luke goes in, verse number 1, <clears throat> to, the, to the timing of, of everything. Sorry, communion cracker. Um, Luke's purpose is to locate the ministry of John the Baptist in space and time. Now, his dating allows us to get an approximate date of the start of John's ministry, but not an exact date. And uh, you would never believe how much ink has been spilled on when did John the Baptist's ministry start, because nothing that we're going to read in verse number one, nothing that we read about in verse number one gives us an exact date. <coughs> and so um, Luke did not give this, I'm sorry, I'm still dealing with a little bit of leftover from being sick. Um, the description was not given so that we can have an exact date of the commencement of his ministry. If you look at it from a different perspective, you can see the purpose. And the purpose is he wants people to see the political and social and religious climate of the day. And that's, what, that's what's going on here. And there's some very fascinating material. Uh, Net, Netflix could turn this into a series and it'd be very well watched. Uh, it's fascinating. And I would love to go through it in detail, but I'm going to run through it very quickly, but it's going to be very, I think, very beneficial. The first marker that we have here in verse number one of Luke chapter number three is what? The 15th year of, of Tiberius Caesar. The 15th year of Tiberius Caesar. Now, who is Tiberius Caesar? Well, he followed his father, Caesar Augustus. And again, I said that this is interesting. Up until this time, the Roman Senate picked the Caesar. But Caesar Augustus, wanting his own family to ascend to the throne, appointed his son uh, as the next emperor of Rome. And that was Tiberius Caesar. Now the problem with getting an exact date is this. Caesar Augustus, we know exactly when he died. He died August 19th, AD 14. But his son, Tiberius Caesar, was a co-regent with him. He ruled along with him beginning about 11 to 12 AD. And so you have now already a three-year discrepancy here. We don't know when Luke was counting. Was Luke counting the co-regency or was he counting when uh, Caesar Augustus died? And so we don't know. But the, the 15th year could be somewhere as early as A.D. 29 and as late as A, or A.D. 26 and as late as A.D. 29. Well, who's the next person mentioned? Pontius Pilate. Now, Pontius Pilate is, is interesting. I'm going to throw a map up here. If you don't like maps, I'm sorry. And you probably can't see this that well. I like maps, okay? Now, let me show you something about this map. This whole region is Herod the Great's region. Now, remember... Herod the Great ruled the region appointed by, the, by Caesar Augustus. Um, he ruled that region 
until 4 B.C. And that's also the year in which John the Baptist and Jesus were born, about 4, 4 or 5 B.C. When he died, his land was split. And we're going to get into a, a detail about that in just a minute. That, but this was um, Herod Archelaus's uh, territory. Archelaus, one of his sons. And if you remember in um, the, the, the Gospels, when they went down to Egypt and came back, when they came back to the region of Judea, they realized Archelaus was there and it was too dangerous and they moved north. You remember that? It was Archelaus. This area, Perea and Galilee, was Herod Antipas. This was Herod Philip's area. And then up here is, is uh, Licinius. And we're going to get into this. But Pontius Pilate, where does he figure in? Archelaus was so terrible that he was deposed by Rome. They, they sacked him really fast. He was not uh, a ruler very long. And Pontius Pilate came in to this region of Judea and became the governor there. Now, the, Luke uses the word ruler or governor, but the word is actually prefect. In other words, he was placed there to do the bidding of Rome, and Rome was perfectly happy with Pontius Pilate, but the Jews hated the man. He, he had a reputation. You know what his reputation was? He was merciless, he was inflexible, he was self-willed, and he was wicked. Uh, one writer says that his rule was characterized by briberies, insults, robberies, outrageous and wanton injuries, frequent executions without trial, and endless savage ferocity. That was Pontius Pilate. That was the man, as you know, uh, under whom Jesus was executed in his crucifixion. That's Pontius Pilate. Now, the next person mentioned in verse number one is Herod the Tetrarch of Galilee. This is Herod Antipas. He was given Galilee and Perea. Now, interesting, when Herod the Great's will was written, this um, Antipas was supposed to have the whole, the whole um, region. And right before he died, for whatever reason, Herod the Great split it into four sections. And that made his son mad, and he traveled all the way to Rome to contest it, and he lost. He lost uh, the, the contesting of his dad's uh, last-minute will. But Herod Antipas was given the re region, and he ruled from 4 B.C. to 39 A.D. And you can read in verses 18 and 19 of Luke chapter number 3, he was the one who chopped off the head of John the Baptist. He also, we, we learn, had a part in the execution of Jesus Christ. And so, so there's son number two. There's region number two. And then Luke says his brother Herod Philip ruled the area north of Galilee. That's this area right here, this purple area. Um, the, the, the Decapolis. No, I'm sorry, not purple. Whatever color that is, it's washed out by the lights. Um, and this is Herod Philip. If, if you've been with me to Israel, then you've been to his capital city, Caesarea Philippi, which is the headwaters of the Jordan River. And it's around Caesarea Philippi where Peter confessed to Jesus Christ um, that he's the Messiah. And Jesus said, 
you're the you're rock, the rock and upon this rock I will build my church. Remember that? That happened at the gates of hell, which is up there by Caesarea Philippi. Then there's uh, Licinius, the, the Tetrarch of Abilene and, um, and uh, Traconitus and that area up there. Now, historians have for a long time said that this is Luke's error. Luke made an error here. And because there was a, there was a well-known Lysanias who died in 36 B.C. And it said Luke doesn't know what he's talking about. However, recently, archaeologists have found an inscription of a later man named Lysanias who lived during the reign of Tiberius. Isn't it amazing how the Bible is accurate in everything it says? Now, why do I take the time to point out all these men? Because if you know their history, you know a couple things. Number one, the rulers of the region were all Gentiles. And number two, they were all very wicked and corrupt. And Luke is making a point that the political situation in Israel is extremely corrupt when John the Baptist began his ministry. But then he mentions two Jewish people, doesn't he? He mentions two Jewish people. And I want you to notice the peculiar way that he states it. He says, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. Now, what's going on here? How, how can they begin with the rule of two men? And the fact of the matter is, there was only one official high priest, and we're going to get into this in, in a little bit, but the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas is, is very interesting. Annas is not officially the high priest during this time. The office of high priest, though, and this is very important, in the Old Testament, the, there was a God chose the high priest from among the sons of Aaron. By the time we get to the time of Jesus, the high priest was chosen by Rome. And the high priest was generally chosen, given to the man who could give the, the assurances of the most money to Rome. It was all about bribery and, and about money. Not much has changed in the last 2,000 years, has it? And, and so the, the office high priest was no longer filled by the methods prescribed in the Old Testament, but rather it was uh, filled and vacated at the whims of, of the Roman procurators. Annas, the father, was, was installed in A.D. 7, and he was deposed A.D. 15. Caiaphas is not his son, but his son-in-law. And Annas had so much power that he was able to get the new guy that came in that deposed him to put his son-in-law in there in his place. Now, Annas, as I said, wielded tremendous power. This is how staggering his power was. The next six high priests were either his sons or his son-in-law Caiaphas. And they were there so long, they're in place so long, that um, his fifth son, Ananus II, or yeah, Ananus II, stoned James, the half-brother of Jesus, in AD 62. That's how much power Annas had. He had so much power and so much riches. He belonged to the Sadducee party. And he was arrogant, 
He was an astute politician. He was ambitious, and he was enormously wealthy. Now, does that sound like the right description of a high priest, what you know of in the Old Testament? Not at all, is it? He and his family were uh, proverbial for their rapacity and their greed. The, the chief source of their wealth was, came from the sale of the provisions for the temple sacrifices. And by provisions, I'm talking about sheep and doves and wine and oil. They had a racket going on. The racket, the, there was a name for it. They, there were four areas around the temple, and it was called the booths of the sons of Annas. And nobody brought a sheep or any kind of grain in unless they allowed it. And guess what? They didn't allow it. You had to go there, and you had to buy their sheep at an exorbitant price. You had to buy their wine and their oil at an exorbitant price. And it, it was a racket. Um, they, uh, during the great feast, they were able to ex extort high monopoly prices for goods. Matter of fact, it was the booths of Annas that Jesus overturned. Remember when Jesus overturned the booths and he made the whips? That was Annas. Annas knew this when Jesus was on trial for his crucifixion. The, the other thing that they did, by the way, is they made a rule that, uh, remember when Jesus said, when they were talking about taxes, and he said, whose inscription is on this coin? And they said, Caesar's. Well, they, they had a rule that no Roman coin could be given in a temple offering. Well, then what did they do? They printed their own coins. And, of course, the exchange rate was very favorable towards them. Annas had an iron grip on everything related to the Jewish sacrificial system and worship in Jerusalem. And this is why he's mentioned so prominently in the Gospels. And so think about the, the situation that they're coming into, John the Baptist and Jesus. You, you have tremendous corruption of the political system. It's being run by bribes. And, and corrupt men. Well, okay, we're going to get a reprieve because we're going to worship the living God, except that the worship of the living God is being run by corrupt and greedy men as well. It was dark. They placed heavy, heavy burdens on the people. That's why Jesus said, my burden is light, my yoke is light, my burden is easy. Remember when he said that? Because of the yoke of bondage, that not only the politicians, but also the religious leaders placed upon them. And so I want to make two comments with all of this that I, I've just said. The first comment is this. John the Baptist and Jesus began their ministries sometime between 26 and 29 AD. Now, if they were both born about 4 BC, roughly 4 BC, then they were somewhere around 30 to 33 years old when they began their ministries. The second note is, and I've already mentioned it, and I'll mention it again, their ministries began during a time of massive, massive corruption. The political environment was corrupt, and the priests had succeeded in corrupting the worship of God. 
everywhere they looked, there was corruption. And so their day was really no different than our own, is it? Uh, Justice is perverted in our country. Our politicians are corrupt. All the new politicians go into Washington, D.C. saying they're going to make changes. Nothing ever changes except the politician himself. Our officials are corrupt. Our universities are corrupt. Uh, it's, it's corruption everywhere. And, and the church, by the way. Let me tell you this. The church is corrupt as well. We, we have suffered under decades of preaching that tickles people's ears and tells people what they want to hear as a result. People who name the name of Jesus Christ are ignorant of the Bible. And so we have surveys that come out and more than 50% of people who call themselves evangelicals, Christians, don't even know the gospel of Jesus Christ. They can't explain it. 60% of them. More than half of them say that that Jesus (coughs) is not the only way to heaven. That Islam is, is a good religion. That you can see the same God that Islam serves is the same God that we serve. The church, for decades now, has, has corrupted the people in the church with shallow, vapid, feel-good, itching ears type preaching. And it, it's uh, what the result is, by the way, is that you have parents who have no biblical discernment, who are not even bothering really to train their kids, or if they do train their kids, they're passing along something just as shallow, and the kids say, you know what, I don't want any part of that. Right? That's where we are. Now, I want you to notice verse number three. Finally, we'll move on to verse number three. The word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Notice that John's staying away from the, the, the center of power, the, 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 the population centers. The word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness, and he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now this is very curious. A lot has been said and a lot has been written about this baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. What is this? I'm going to do my best to run through Scripture and give you an answer. As Mark said today, Scripture interprets Scripture. Now, what do we need to remember about John the Baptist? The first thing we need to remember is who he was. This is very important to understand this little phrase here, the baptism of repentance for forgiveness of sins. John was a preparatory figure, preparing people for whom? Jesus Christ, right? Turn back to Luke chapter number 1. Turn back to Luke chapter 1, verse number 15, and you'll see a prophecy about John the Baptist here. Verse number 15 says, For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to their God. So his job is to begin turning people to their God, and he will go before him in the, in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just 
and to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Now, what is John the Baptist's job description? To prepare people for the coming of Jesus Christ. It's to begin tilling and overturning the, the soil of people's hearts so that when Jesus comes and proclaims the gospel and, and lives the gospel, they believe on Jesus Christ. Look later on in chapter 1 to a prophecy of, from his father Zechariah, verse number 76. And you, child, shall, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will be go, go before who? Jesus, the Lord, and prepare his ways to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. The, the message hasn't changed. John is fulfilling his job description. And so when, when John began to preach repentance and forgiveness of sins, guess what happened? God's promises came true. All the way back in the Old Testament, we see in Malachi. He's preparing the way. 400 years, it's been predicted that John the Baptist is going to come. He's going to prepare the way. And here he is. God always keeps his promises, doesn't he? Now, it seems a long time coming for the Jews. But it, it's, it's in God's perfect timing. And can I tell you, God is still in the business of keeping his promises Think of the promises. Yesterday I preached the funeral message for uh, David Pierce and I talked about the promises of God. Is Jesus lying when he promises that if we would sell our goods and give them to the poor that we have great reward in heaven? Is he lying? Is he using hyperbole? Do we just explain that away? When Peter looked at Jesus and said, we left everything, talking about his business, to serve you, Jesus. And Jesus said, there's not one of you who leaves lands and, and family and your jobs who will not receive a hundredfold and more in the kingdom of heaven. And you will receive what? Eternal life. Is Jesus just exaggerating there? Is that a promise that he's not going to keep? What about the promise? What about the, all the parables, the kingdom parables in Matthew, where he says the, to the one who, who works for Jesus and gives five talents and he reaps ten more, what does Jesus say? You'll rule with me in the kingdom to the three talent. You are in two talent. You will rule with me in the kingdom. Are those all just nothing? Is, is, Jesus, is Jesus just exaggerating when he, when he promises that if we will dedicate our life to him, live as disciples of him, deny ourselves, and take up our cross and follow him, is, is that promise not true? The answer is no. If we were to, to get our eyes on Jesus, our minds on eternity, and, and follow Jesus with our whole heart, the Bible says that great is our reward in heaven. Paul interpreted, by the way, later on, he said, he said godliness with contentment is what? Great gain. There are so many promises in Scripture. And we, uh, as Americans, we have so much wealth. We are astoundingly wealthy. 
Friday night, Jeffrey and I were, were talking about the wealth of Americans and how wealthy every single one of us are. We're, we're wealthy beyond imagination, and we could give so much. Do we really believe what God says that it's more blessed to give than receive? So many promises, and God keeps them all. Not one promise that God has ever made will not be fulfilled. Isn't that wonderful to know? Now, when John began to preach, God's promises came true. But I want you to notice, for, go to chapter 3, verse number 16, and see how he describes his own baptism. Because remember, what we're doing is we're, we're going to interpret what is this baptism that John does. Verse number 16, in verse number 15, the people are asking him, is he the Messiah? And he answers, no. And here's what he said in verse number 16. I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. And notice the baptism of Jesus. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So what is, let me paraphrase what John's saying. Can I paraphrase it? My baptism is nothing compared to the baptism of Jesus Christ. It's nothing. The baptism that I perform is nothing compared to that of the Messiah. Now I want you to see one more scripture because this helps us interpret what is John's baptism. Turn to the book of Acts. Acts chapter number 19. <coughs> Acts 19, verse number 1. We, he, we find the baptism of John mentioned here. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, that Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus, and there he found some disciples. Now, who are these disciples? And he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we haven't even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So they know nothing about the Holy Spirit. And he said that he's puzzled. Into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. So, so, so evidently, some disciples of John the Baptist had traveled all the way into Asia Minor, to Ephesus, and had preached the, God, the, the news that John the Baptist preached there in Ephesus. Look at verse number 4. And Paul said, and this is the important statement, this is so critically important, John baptized with a baptism of repentance, and what did he tell them? Telling people to believe the one who is co to come after him, and then Paul looks at these disciples and he said, that person is none other than Jesus. And so John is baptizing people, calling them to repent, and calling them to believe in the one who is coming, who is Jesus Christ. And so John's baptism didn't save. John's baptism uh, was not a baptism even of salvation. Now, that, that you, some of you may disagree. I'm going to show you some things here in just a minute. According to verse number 4, Luke chapter 3, and or, I'm sorry, according to Acts 19, verse number 4, John's baptism looks forward to faith in the Christ. Now, let me show you a couple more verses in Acts 19. Look at verse number 5. In verse number 5, 
on hearing this, they were baptized, how? In the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. And so here you have 12 men who were baptized with the baptism of John, looking forward to the coming of the Messiah. Paul came and preached the Messiah, Jesus Christ, preached the gospel to them, explained to them about Jesus, and believing they were then baptized in his name, and it was in Jesus' baptism that the Holy Spirit came upon them. Now let me, let me approach this from a little bit different perspective, can I? Back in the days of Israel, what was being what was baptized? Who was baptized? Did you know that Jew, Jewish people weren't baptized? It was, this was not a Jewish baptism at all. Turn, turn back to Luke chapter 3 with me. But John the Baptist is baptizing Jews, Israelites. What's going on here? Well, first of all, it's not a ritual washing. If, if you've ever been to Israel and you've been to the temple, you, you know the southern steps of the temple, which were the main steps that led up. The, the, most of the crowds came in from the southern steps. There were mikveh everywhere. A mikveh is a ritual bath. And, and the ritual bath, if you've been there, by the way, we're going back in uh, late January, February, and uh, I'm getting updated pricing from our guide, and I'll give you more information when that comes out. So if you signed up for that, we're still going. Israel, by the way, is uh, they don't require vaccinations right now. And so if you're interested in that, you, I'll get you more information. But when we, when we go there, these, these ritual baths, um, you walk down, and then you, you make a turn, and then you come back up the stairs on the other side. And what this is, this ritual bath, is a, it's, it's a washing. It's a Jewish rite of cleansing before they went up to, te- to the temple. But John's baptism is not a ritual bath. It's not for Jews. Baptism at this time was for Gentiles. Whenever a Gentile wanted to come into Israel and identify with the religion of Israel and identify with the people of Israel, they were required to go through a ceremonial baptism. And the word baptized, by the way, means immersion. They were completely immersed. Okay? And by doing this, Gentiles and now the Jews that were following John the Baptist were demonstrating their uncleanness. They were confessing their uncleanness. They were confessing their separation from the covenant and the covenant people. They were confessing their separation from the true and living God. And so that a a Gentile proselyte (coughs) coming into Judaism who wanted to be included in the fold had to go through this baptism in which he confessed himself unclean outside the covenant, apart from the true God and his people, and in need of cleansing. One of the rabbis during the time said that after baptism, one who has become a proselyte is like a child who is newly born. Now imagine with me for just a minute. Imagine with me how humbling it had to be for a Jew to undergo baptism in order to uh, follow John. 
So what was happening was this. John was preaching to these Jewish people that you are outside the covenant. And you need to repent to the point where you recognize that you're no different than a Gentile. And so these people that John was baptizing realized that the rituals of Judaism were not enough. They saw their own sinfulness. And the repentance that's in view here is one that causes a person to alter their lives and look forward to the coming one. And who's the coming one? Jesus Christ. This baptism was in a, a commitment to this perspective. Now, here's the question. Did many of them follow Jesus? No. They didn't. Most of them rejected Jesus. You see, they fell short of trusting in Christ. Many of them rejected Him. They felt bad about their sin. They, they were burdened by the weight of their sin, but they never came to Christ. Is it any different today? You have people who are burdened by their sin. They, they know that inside they are not the same as they project on the outside. They project to be a good person, but they know the inner corruption of their heart. And they know that there's sin in their heart and there's wickedness in their heart, but they can never bring themselves to have faith in Jesus Christ. And so this repentance is never coupled with faith in Jesus, therefore it's no salvation. These Jews, their hearts are humble and pliable, and God was preparing their hearts for the coming of Jesus Christ. Luke even informs us of this. Look at verse number 4. We're almost done, I promise. Uh, we're almost done, but this is so important that we understand this. Verse number 4, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, and this is Isaiah chapter 40, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, what's he crying? Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill shall be made low, the crooked shall be made straight, the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of the Lord. When a, a, in ancient times, when the king came to a town, they drastically improved the road system. They leveled everything out for that king. And so when an emperor or another eminent person was about to visit the, 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 the city, the citizens were required to have a well-constructed approach road, landscaped and everything else. And with due pomp and dignity, this king would come into the city. And to make sure that the people were ready to receive this king, the, the king would send a messenger on ahead of himself to herald the news of his coming. And Isaiah took this custom and turned it into a prophecy that one day a great king would come to God's people. And when he did, his approach would be announced by a herald in the wilderness to prepare the coming of the king. And the prophet uh, envisioned in, in massive public works project in which whole mountains would be leveled. Valleys would be raised up. There would be a super highway through the wasteland. And the king who walked on it would be the Lord God himself bringing salvation. And this is the way that the prophecy begins and ends. Look at uh, Luke 4, 3, 4 and, and verse number 6. Prepare the way of the Lord. And verse number 6 says, 
all flesh shall see the salvation of God. And Luke took Isaiah's prophecy and said applied to the coming of Christ. Isaiah had prophesied what? He said there's a voice crying in the wilderness. Luke called it the voice. And it belonged to John the Baptist. He was the forerunner. He was the publicist. He was the advanced man for the gospel. Mary, Zechariah, Simeon had all celebrated God's salvation. John announced that it was about to arrive in the person of his cousin, Jesus Christ. And soon everyone would see salvation. And it's characteristic of, of Luke to point out the global impact of the gospel. I want you to notice one thing. And, and you'll have to trust me because I'm long on this sermon. But he says at the end of this, all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Did you know that Matthew and Mark do not include that? Matthew and Mark do not include that phrase. Matthew was written to who? Jewish people. All right? He did not include it. This does not mean, this phrase, all flesh shall see salvation of God, does not mean that every individual of the human race or even all who willfully reject him um, will, will get saved. That, that, that runs counter to the New Testament. Rather, what it means, and this is important, it means that no kind of person, there is no kind of person that the gospel cannot reach. Does that make sense? No boundary it cannot cross. Luke is not saying that everyone will be saved, but that anyone can be saved. This, you see the exact same thing in John 3.16. For God so loved the world. Does it mean he loved every person in the world? What it means is that he loved every kind of person in the world. It's universal in its scope, is what, what he's talking about here. And so John was preparing the way for the first coming of Christ. Now, how do we prepare the way for the second coming of Christ? He's come once, he's coming again. How do we get prepared? I want to end very quickly, turn to one passage of Scripture. Take your Bibles and turn to 2 Peter 1. I promise we'll be done within three minutes. Peter begins his second letter in a very interesting way. He tells his readers that God has given them everything that they need to become godly. And so what are they to do with that information? If God has given you everything to become godly, verse number 5, for this reason make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. What did he do? He said, God, God, Peter said that since God has given you everything to become more godly, strive to be more godly. Isn't that what he's saying? Don't sit back on your haunches and let go and let God. That's not Christ-like. That's not what the Bible says. And then he concludes this way, and this is where I want to go with this. He concludes the paragraph, verse number 10. Very, very important. Here's his connector. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never what? Fall. Fall away. Verse number 11. For in this way, 
There will be richly provided for you an entrance into eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. How do we prepare the way for the second coming of Jesus? We put off sin and put on Christ's likeness. And you know what that's called? Repentance. It's the same message that John the Baptist preached, that Jesus preached, that Paul preached. And here we see Peter preaching. The one who has faith in Christ is the one whose life is characterized by repentance. Now let me ask you a question. Does that describe your life? Are you preparing right now for the coming of Christ? Lord, we thank you for <clears throat> Scripture. I, I pray that we will be a people prepared, prepared for the coming of Jesus, that we won't be like the five foolish virgins who were caught off guard that we will not be like the unwise servant who buried his talent but rather that we will be those people who strive to put off sin and to put on Christ likeness that we will be the people who are out calling on people to repent and believe on Jesus Christ that we will uh, be telling people that the kingdom of God is at hand and the Christ is coming back in all his glory and power and wonder and that we'll be awestruck at him in Christ's name. Amen.